Money FM 89.3. Best of breakfast. Morning shot. I'm Ryan Huang. Welcome to Morning Shot. Now, if you take a quick look around you, temperatures, and this is where you may be feeling it. The world is already getting warmer. Now, with less than a decade left to take action to limit the global mercury rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to get a lot done. And in order to avoid that, scientists have described it, of course, as catastrophic effects of climate change. We need to talk about it as well as look at what governments can do on this decarbonization journey of economic growth. What needs to be done alongside the ambitions for achieving net zero? These were some of the issues right front and centre of discussion at the Ecosperity Week's opening dinner last evening. In the next few days, global business leaders, policymakers, investors and industry experts are set to take the conversations further as they gather to collectively search for solutions targeted at fast-tracking decarbonisation, enabling net zero cities and financing Asia's net zero transitions. So let's dive into this with William McGoldrick. He is the Regional Managing Director for the Nature Conservancy's Asia-Pacific Division and Co-Chair of the Southeast Asia Climate and Nature-Based Solutions Coalition. Welcome to the show, William. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on the show. Now let's turn back the clock a little here. So let's look at what happened back in 2005-2008. You were living and working in a number of Pacific Island nations, and this included four years in Samoa. And you were an advisor to the Samoan government on climate change policy. So it's a big part of the conversation there because of how vulnerable they are to natural disasters. So could you share your first-hand account of what you saw there and how big a threat such changes in the climate can affect communities? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, Pacific Island countries are often referred to as being on the front line of the climate change crisis. They're often small island uh, nations uh, surrounded by ocean uh, with a lot of their population and infrastructure sitting right along the coastline. So they're heavily exposed to sea level rise, to storm surge, um, but they're also suffering in some years um, extreme drought and flooding from extreme rainfall, contradictorily. So as, as the climate sort of heats up and the weather conditions become more and more extreme, these countries really sort of uh, are very exposed. They're also countries where uh, they often don't have a lot of resources to respond to natural disasters, perhaps as we might in, in a place like Singapore or a place like Australia, where I'm, I'm from. So uh, they are very vulnerable. Uh, Samoa, on the other hand, though, as well, is a, is a place that it's got a high degree of resilience. The people are, uh, are very proud of their heritage. They're very practical and good at looking after themselves. Indeed, that's how they survive, have survived for thousands of years on these fairly remote islands. So they're not, they're not giving up. They're, they they want to fight. They want to um, stay on these islands. They want to, uh, this is their home and they're looking for support. They're looking for the international community to help them, of course, uh, mm. address and, and, and lower the impact of climate change, but also to help, help respond to these unavoidable impacts. Yeah, William, that's a great overview how these consequences are very real for many people, especially for these people in Samoa who live in island type of um, scenarios. So applying all the experience you've had going through climate talks, there's been a lot of talk about net zero, how we need to achieve that. Give us an idea of what that means and what net zero leadership means to you. I think it's a, it's a good question and there's a few different ways to, to answer it. I, for me, net zero leadership means doing what's right for your children and for your grandchildren. 
So thinking ahead, thinking to the future, what is the future that we want to leave for our grandkids or if you don't have kids, for your nieces, your nephews, for your family members or perhaps your neighbours, you know, uh, thinking about that and, and then asking yourself, what can I do as an individual, as a leader to help transition to zero carbon economies? Practically speaking, of course, it means getting out of dirty fossil fuels like gas and coal as, as quickly as possible uh, and scaling up investment in renewable energy, which is becoming a lot cheaper and more competitive, uh, but also helping to restore and plant uh, forests and grasslands and wetlands across the world, which can store and absorb carbon from the atmosphere. But for me, it's an ethical and moral kind of starting point for people as to what future do they want to contribute to? Uh, do they want to be on the right side of history here, contributing to a positive future? Or are they happy to sort of forego that future and, and maybe contribute to to the problem. Yeah, let's talk about what it means to take leadership because um, everyone has a stake in this develop and developing nations. So who should be taking a lead here and who can make a bigger impact? Because when you think about it, you've got developing countries trying to get by. They've got a lot on their plate when it comes to all the issues. And of course, the developed world already went through that phase. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and there's no doubt, there's no denying that, that the wealthier developed countries are the ones that have contributed most to the problem. The science and the statistics on that is very clear. I think what's interesting, though, is actually now it makes way more sense for a developing country to not follow the pathway that developed countries followed by investing in coal and, and gas and, and other fossil fuels, but instead investing in renewable energy, which is often mm. way cheaper um, and uh, more competitive and definitely a longer term bet. So Yes, developed countries need to take responsibility. Yes, they need to be investing and supporting developing countries. But on the other hand, I don't think we have time to be kind of getting too caught up in trying to argue that they should follow the same pathway. That pathway served us well before we knew about climate change. But now that we know about climate change, we have to choose a different pathway. And that's, that's where developing countries need support and investment. Yeah, I'm just looking at the latest headlines. We've got blackouts in northern areas of Vietnam, in industrial parks, which affects MNCs like Canon and so on, because people were just trying to struggle or manage the rise in heat, turning on too many air conditioners. So that's an issue I think that will continue to play out, disruptions to electricity supply as they try to cope with demand overloads for power. So when you look at all these issues, what more can be done? Because we all know these issues are there. Why aren't they being tackled at a much more urgent pace? That's the, the million-dollar question in, in many ways. I, I think the facts and the science are there. I think uh, governments and corporations and communities have been, I guess, warned about this for a, for a long time. It really boils down to political will and also, I think, increasingly governments and corporations not thinking of this so much as like a major barrier to their economic prosperity, but an opportunity, it's a disruptive opportunity. And the, and the leading companies and the leading countries now are seeing this as a, as a big opportunity to be at the forefront of these new technologies in renewable energy, energy efficiency, but also the transition to, to low carbon agriculture, low carbon food production. Uh, a lot of countries are starting to see that as an opportunity to sort of pioneer and, and own those approaches, own those technologies. We've seen China mm. invest very heavily in renewable energy and it now dominates the renewable energy marketplace. So I think, and, and Singapore. Uh, Singapore has really come out as a strong advocate and a strong leader. And 
I'm sure that's because the government sees it as the right thing to do, which is great, but I'm sure they also see it as an opportunity for Singapore to be at the forefront of this change, to see this as an opportunity uh, for prosperity in Singapore, which which is great, and that's a powerful motivator, so we should really embrace that. Right, we're in conversation with William McGoldrick. He is the Regional Managing Director for the Nature Conservancy's Asia-Pacific Division and co-chair of the Southeast Asia Climate and Nature-Based Solutions Coalition. Now, William, looking at what is on the table here, we want to move the needle when it comes to climate change, and there are a lot of things that can be done. So this is you know, looking at, for example, how we can induce or incentivize change. And when it comes to investments in fossil fuel power plants, for example, we have seen a lot of banks shy away from um, financing because it's becoming, uh, in a way, what shareholders want. What is the best way to actually go about it to encourage change? Because this also affects livelihoods for many populations as well. When you look at, for example, how many sectors like mining employs you know, thousands of people. What's the best way to move the needle when it comes to transiting to a greener future? I think the key is to be really proactive and it needs it needs government and corporations and communities to come together and map out really clear transition plans that uh, ensure that we continue to see economic growth, which I think is essential, of course, for livelihoods and for people's uh, aspirations. And, and not seeing this as something where it's about kind of crashing the economy or kind of stopping that growth or st- stopping that, uh, preventing people from achieving their aspirations. That's not the case at all. It's really about doing it in a, in a really sensible, uh, smart way. And there are so many solutions now which are cost effective. They need a little bit of policy support. They need clarity from, from government. They need the, the current incumbent in the energy sector, those who are relying on, on fossil fuels, to start switching where they put their money. These guys know how to produce electricity. That's great. And increasingly, they're putting it to good use and starting to switch to renewables. So I think it's about a managed and just transition for, for workers, for communities, and of course, for companies. No one's trying to get companies to go broke. We're trying to get companies to, to embrace this change and grow and become richer because of that change. Uh, but they've got to shift their mindset if they want to be part of that solution. All right, let's take a look at what else can be done besides investments. So you have also the option to accelerate the transition to greener alternatives by actually harnessing the power of nature to fight climate change. Could you give us some real-life examples of how that can be done? So nature is sitting there in front of us as an untapped solution. Forests and and mangroves and grasslands absorb carbon from the atmosphere. I think we all remember that from high school biology and uh, photosynthesis. Uh, And essentially essentially what's happening there is these carbons are lost. They're being converted to to agriculture. They're being converted for infrastructure. Maybe they're being um, unsustainably uh, harvested, whatever it might be. And so we need to turn that around. And and we estimate that if you turn that around, uh, you could unlock around 30% of the solution that's, that's needed to achieve the goals under the Paris Agreement. Now, that's a big solution to leave on the table. Uh, Luckily, there are some really great examples within this region here. We've seen uh, Indonesia, just just across the water here from from Singapore, uh, starting to make really important headway at slowing down deforestation, recognising that their forests, these beautiful, uh, ecologically important but also economically important assets, can be sustainably managed. And we're seeing uh, good examples of communities, uh, the government and, and some corporations starting to switch to much more sustainable practices uh, when it comes to forests. We're seeing the restoration of mangroves. And many countries in Southeast Asia have vast areas of mangrove forests which grow along the coastline. These mangroves are really important nurseries for fish. Uh, they provide mm-hmm. a lot of the seafood that we depend on, but they also help to store vast amounts of carbon. In fact, per hectare, more than a rainforest. 
Uh, so big focus on starting to restore them at the moment. And then, as I mentioned before, switching to low-carbon agriculture production is also the next frontier that, that's starting to emerge. Right, lots that can be done and lots to be done. I've been chatting with William McGoldrick. He is the Regional Managing Director for the Nature Conservancy's Asia-Pacific Division and co-chair of the Southeast Asia Climate and Nature-Based Solutions Coalition. William, great having you on the show and we'll catch up with you again soon. Thank you, Ryan. Have a good day. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.